Up and down the coast of California, from San Diego to Sacramento, from the Bay to the border, these are the young voices of the Golden State. This podcast tells their stories, the stories of men and women who are fighting for a voice in their communities and all over the country, who are working together in solidarity to rise up as one. From Fusion Media Group, this is The Brave. I'm your host, Felonius Monk, and together with reporters from Fusion's Rise Up, Be Heard youth journalism program, we're lifting up the stories of real people who are discovering strength and solidarity and common cause with one another. So we know that the movies and people who make those movies can be a force for positive change in our society. From April Rain's Oscars So White to the Time's Up movement to Standing with Dreamers, Countless celebrities have come forward, sometimes at the risk of their reputations and or careers, to stand up for what they believe in. Bamba Jean Bamba is an Ivorian-born actor and activist. He's also, it turns out, one of the actors in the now runaway hit movie Black Panther. And in 2017, he came forward as undocumented. For a long time, I've always felt this urge in my spirit, like, man, you got to speak up. You got to do something. You have this platform. Maybe you can make a difference. Bambajan is a man who has risked everything, literally everything, to follow his dreams and to stand up for the dreams of others. So Dreamers, it's a name we use to describe the young men and women who came to the U.S., undocumented as minors. They come from all sorts of backgrounds, yet we've been led to view dreamers as citizens from Central and Latin America only. According to the Center for American Progress, over 400,000 dreamers are actually from Africa. Bamba has used his platform to raise awareness about undocumented African dreamers and to bring together in solidarity the undocumented groups from all cultural and ethnic backgrounds. Reporter Betty Rosales met up with Bamba to talk with him about how far he's come. How did you and your parents first come to the U.S.? Oh, well, um, well, how we came? We came by plane. <laughs> uh, I was 10 years old from uh, Ivory Coast in West Africa. And uh, at the time, uh, the political situation got a little bit... Um, uh, let's just say volatile, and uh, my parents decided to come to America, to the South Bronx, to seek political asylum. So before coming to America, my dad was uh, this high-level banker who traveled around the world and, you know, from did, did exchange stocks and stuff like that. I don't even know that much of details. All I know is he was traveling a lot and sending pictures, and I'm like, man, I want to travel with you one day. Um, my dad was, my mom was a secretary at, uh, the international, um, port in Ivory Coast. Um, so they were both educated. Um, and when, when, uh, they came to America, my father couldn't find a job as a banker because of the language barrier. It was really challenging for him. And he drove a yellow cab and picked up jobs left and right. My mom and him then eventually started the hairstyling business because my mom started braiding hair. 
And uh, that's that's actually what she still does today, on top of the hundreds of other little businesses that she has, <laughs> that she does. Uh-huh. What was life like when you first arrived here? Um, wow, it was it was a lot to get adjusted to. In Africa, I mean, I was just digesting a lot of American movies, um, you know. So my my imagination of America was probably like Disneyland at that age, <laughs> you know, Disneyland, snow, um, you know, picket fence, that that kind of lifestyle. But we ended up in the South Bronx, and that had nothing to do with any imagery that I've ever seen about America. That's far from Disneyland. That's a, really, really far. Hollywood really sold the dream to the world about what America is. So I think I learned English within like three months. And, you know, I was a kid, so I kind of feel like my brain was open to that sponge to just receive everything. Um, Watched a lot of television, a lot of um, cartoon Ninja Turtles, listened to a lot of hip hop. uh, refugees, Wyclef, Tupac, Biggie, Snoop, Mace, anyone that could rap a little slower, you know. Um, and and I just remember, especially in the South Bronx, that you had to be tough to survive. Like, you couldn't hang out on your own or alone. I mean, I remember my brother being jumped for his metro card and it was like a group of like four kids no one fought by themselves um so there was that part where we kind of had to get tough really fast and then there was the other part where my mom and my dad worked all the time so we were kind of like left to our own selves to just figure out what to do so we kind of had to grow up fast to make money, there were like Dominican, Puerto Rican stores around. So my brother and I would just go bag groceries. I just remember entire summers because we realized that they didn't care who bagged the gro- groceries. As long as groceries were bagged, and we were like, oh, this could make some money for us. So we started going to the store around the corner and doing that while there was other guys who were there and that was like their gig and they were trying to push us away or whatever, but we wouldn't give up. And it just became this thing like, you know, there's there's an opportunity to make money and we kind of like were really excited. And then there was an opportunity to move to Virginia um, so that they can start a business. My mom was like a hair stylist, a hair braider. And they moved to Virginia, or we moved to Virginia, and that was another exciting move. Like, oh, okay, cool, we're moving. And Virginia was kind of what I saw on TV growing up. Um, It was, you know, the homes, the lawn, the yellow bus that comes pick you up, the school system that's kind of organized. That's where I kind of started doing more theater. I started doing uh, playing tennis. I was in JROTC. Just everything like a normal teenager would do, right? Eventually got pretty popular because of the plays that I was doing. You mentioned the plays. Mm-hmm. When when was it that you decided that you wanted to be an actor? I I was in high school when I made the decision. I think it was the uh we were doing the play um Little Shop of Horrors and 
I got to play the dentist. And, you know, that was a huge role for me. I had so much fun on set. I mean, on stage and just the reaction from everybody, um, the newspaper, the L.A. Times did a feature on me and all that. And, and I think that's when I finally realized that, wow, it's possible to have a career as an actor. Like, this is something that I'm good at. This is something I like. And there's a possibility that I can actually make a career out of it. So I, I think it was around that time that I decided You know, when I decided I wanted to do it, I started looking for schools that um, basically train actors. I didn't even know those were around. So I looked at a bunch of schools, auditioned for a few, and um, got into a couple. And I tried to apply for financial aid, and I found that it wasn't available. So that's kind of when I had a conversation with my parents to figure out, hey, what's going on? We had a serious conversation, and they basically told me that, um, you know, because of the status that we have, we're undocumented, so I can't get financial aid, but they were really supportive as far as um, we'll help you go to college, we'll help you finish school, we'll do what we can. Again, my mom had a small business, and that's basically what they did. Um, I went to the Conservatory of Film and Dramatic Arts in New York City, and I drove yellow cabs to try to make ends meet and to pay for tuition, and that's kind of how I got started. And, you know, when when you started getting more jobs and working mm -hmm. more as an actor, um, has being undocumented affected that work? Um, yes, it has because um, there, there, there's a lot of auditions or projects that shoot outside the country, you know, um, like Mexico, like Canada, like Europe. I mean, uh, so it definitely affected that because I knew um, it would be challenging to come back, the possibility I won't be able to come back. So um, we kind of avoided those auditions. I, I definitely kept it secret from everyone because I didn't want people to, you know, sideline me or just say, hey, you know, you got problems. I just stayed in my corner. I did everything that I could, and I just kept working on projects that were here. And then DACA came along. So <laughs> I remember when that happened, it was like, an answer to prayer, it's a dream come true, it's, you know, a liberation, like finally, oh my God, you can, you can, you can sleep in peace, like you can have peace of mind and know that, you know, a simple traffic stop won't get you deported, won't get you separated from your family, from your life that you know, I mean, it's it just, um, and you apply for it and I remember when I applied they want proof and and it's such a I mean it's a tedious process because they want your fingerprints they want to know if you've been in America when you came in so what proof can I give them of okay I've been in America since I was 10 okay we have a school picture <laughs> right the school picture that we take with my fourth fifth grade. English, Spanish, ESL um, class. 
I I I remember the picture so vividly because on one heart, one part I'm sitting there, you know, with my suit that my father makes me wear all the time, and then on the other side, uh, the African kid that was bullying me at the beginning is right there, looking like a bully. So it's so funny. I I literally had to submit that. I submitted that as proof. On top of you know everything else, yeah, I went to school. I won this won this award. Got this degree. Um, I mean, you pack it up with as much as you can to prove that, look, I've been a contributing member of this society. I don't have a criminal record. So finally, when you get it, you're like, oh, so all my life was just looking for this thing. It's this thing. All right. You take it with gratitude. And So when you started to consider coming out as undocumented, mm-hmm. can you describe for us how that happened? What was that process like? For a long time, I've always felt this urge in my spirit, like, man, you got to speak up. You got to do something. You have this platform. Maybe you can make a difference. But there was a lot of fear around it. I was thinking, man, I could, you know, lose everything that I've built. I could become a target. So it wasn't until the administration decided they wanted to rescind and cancel DACA that I looked at my daughter, I have a one-year-old daughter, and I was like, man, um, if this is canceled, that means I could go back to that crazy roller coaster life and living in fear, living in the shadows and being separated from her and from my wife. I just felt like I couldn't live in fear anymore. I did an interview with the LA Times and um, I felt really good about the interview, and so I figured the the, the article was going to be amazing. But it wasn't like until the night before I got an email like, "Hey, it's going to be featured next week on Monday," and I think it was a Sunday. And I just remember like taking really deep breaths and just like playing out in my mind anything, everything that could possibly happen. Right, so one end you're like, man, geez, what am I doing? Is is this the right decision? Oh my God, what are people gonna think? Ah, uh, I could be made an example. Oh man, this is stupid. So you got all these thoughts that are running through your mind, and then on the other side, there's this, you know, this conviction that I know I'm doing the right thing, that I know my daughter would be proud of me, and I know that deep within my heart, it's the right thing to do. So I just had to take a deep breath and believe and have faith that whatever happens will happen. And my message is, you know, we can't be scared anymore. We have to use our voice. We have to speak our truth. We have to put um, real lives, real stories, real human faces to uh, to the issue, to to make people understand that it's not only politics it's not only you know these things these politicians say but it really affects real lives and real people who are here and who are contributing and who um who who are a blessing to america that narrative that we hear around mm-hmm. you know daca and immigration particularly daca it it centers very largely around undocumented central americans right. undocumented mexicans mm-hmm. What what role do you play in making sure that your identities and other identities are yeah. also represented? 
Oh yeah, that's that's a big part of it because I'm black and um, I'm, I'm African, uh, and immigration is an is a black issue. It's an African issue. Is you know people from the Caribbeans. It's a black issue, but um, the narrative is only Hispanic. I, I remember um, when I share the story, my story with people. They're like, "Oh, I thought that only Mexicans had this problem." But no, I, I mean, it, it It just goes to show that the system is broken. The system is out of date. It's old. It needs to be revisited so that it can be um, modern to, to, to what's going on right now. I mean, can, can you imagine um, investing billions of dollars into kids to go to middle school, high school, even college, and then telling them, hey, go back to your home country. It doesn't make sense. Um, you should be here and whatever you've learned, like to invest in America. It's so important to shatter those stereotypes because, I mean, especially in the last year or two, there's just been like all these crazy, crazy stereotypes about about immigrants. And I hope that my my voice and my image will help people understand that it's not only one group but it affects everybody there's there's a lot more that people don't don't see a lot of times like for me there are actors who are immigrants even undocumented on your favorite shows playing characters that you love look i honestly if if you look at history especially the civil rights movement since you know um MLK Day and all that. It it was all community communities that came together to fight for civil rights in America. It wasn't only the black community, you know, and that's just such a great legacy about the positive change that humanity can make when we come together to fight for for a righteous cause. So the more people speak up, the more the masses rise up from every different culture, ethnicity, background. Uh, the the more peace we can have around this world, the more justice we can have. So I hope that, you know, once once we get the DREAM Act passed, we could go from that to get like real immigration reform that would affect 11 million people who who are like living in fear, who are living in the shadows, who are like second class citizens who can't really fight for for justice. <laughs> Back in the studio with your man, Felonious Monk. And listen, I mentioned that Bambajan was in The Black Panther earlier for a reason. It wasn't just to tie in that he was a part of this big, successful movie. It's because the type of activism that he's involved in, being being seen, making sure that we see Africa in a different light and see African immigrants in a different light, is exactly what uh, this movie about the fictional nation of Wakanda did. As an Ethiopian descendant myself, uh, another African nation that was not colonized. It was just amazing for me personally to see Africans who had not been, as we say, corrupted um, by colonialism taking care of their own. So there was there was this very interesting part of the movie to me where it was, it was people trying to balance protecting their culture and having some type of outreach with other people. Um, but even bigger than that, I've always been taught that if you really believe in something, you have to have some type of investment in it. And I believed in it so much that even though I'd already seen it for free a couple of times, I, you know, spent money 
paying for tickets to make sure that my mom and my wife and my daughter uh, all got to see it. I bought tickets for family members. And I, and I remember uh, one of my earlier and some sales training I had and it said, you don't people aren't really committed to a thing until they invest something has to be their time, their money. They have to have some skin in the game. And so I could tell people that I really support this movie, but I didn't really support it until I spent money that I earned doing something else to support this movie. So what Bombajan is doing uh, and what they did with the Black Panther is, is more than just important because of identity politics or, or, you know, we need diversity or representation. It's important because this is the first time these stories are being told this way on this platform of this size. And it's knocking down stereotypes. It's a black movie that did well overseas. So shout out to them for being successful. And if there's a Black Panther 2, hire me, please. Thank you to our Rise Up Be Heard reporter, Betty Rosales, for talking to Bamba Jean Bamba. Amazing work as usual. The Brave Podcast is a project of Fusion Media Group in partnership with the California Endowment. The Rise Up Be Heard program manager is Jacob Seamus. The show is produced by Raghu Manavalan. Our executive producer is Jonathan Hirsch. And Fusion's executive director of audio is Mandana Mofidi. Special thanks to Fusion Stephen Keppel and Marisela Rodriguez of the California Endowment and to Audio Link LA Studios in Los Angeles, California. You can find out more about the incredible men and women featured on this podcast in the show notes of this episode. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Next up on the podcast... The youth, we have been at the forefront of so many different movements, and we have been given the opportunity to do the same thing now. And that's what I really wanted it to be about, was about um, showing people my age how much power we do have, and that that power is is only fully realized when we are all together as one and when we're embracing our differences, but we're also recognizing our sameness. Don't miss it. Seriously, subscribe so you won't miss it, okay? And I'm Felonious Monk. I'll see you next time. It's the Monk Man here. It's the Monka Monkasaurus. Don't 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 this summer. <laughs> All right, here we go. <clears throat>